0: Well, we uh, can rejoice um, that we have the Bible in our hand, and we can make our way over to Hebrews chapter 13 and continue in this wonderful section in chapter 13 where the writer addresses his Jewish Christian audience about the responsibility to maintain their faith, uh, to maintain their faith. As, As you know, he spent 12 chapters countering their doctoral error. That has defined their drifting with sound doctrinal arguments. And now he turns to the practical part of his address and encourages them to put all this doctrine that he's talked to them about into practice. And this, by the way, is the proper order of things in all of the epistles that mention doctrine and practice. All of them do, actually. And they spell out doctrine first in order to tell the Christian audience what is true of them and then, and then pretty abruptly switch gears and talk to them about how to live what is true of them, how to live that way, how to live the doctrine, doctrine and practice. They go together and in that order. And we see this fa- uh, fa- uh, fulfilled here or, or, or um, coming true in, in the book of Hebrews, 12 chapters of doctrine And then this uh, wonderful chapter on application, strict application. Now the writer of Hebrews explains in Hebrews 13 verses 4 to 9, which is our section, that doctrine applied is nothing short of loving God as we ought. That's really a a general or a a summation of, of what he's talking about. Practicing God's word, letting it abide in us, living his truth, is the truest and fullest expression of our love for him. Jesus taught this in no uncertain terms. He said, John 12, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John fifteen ten. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And the Apostle John carried this same teaching To his Asian congregations. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. 2 John 6, 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. So, just to be clear, and this is an important clarification, we keep God's commandments because we love God, right? We obey out of love for Christ. Love for Christ comes first, and obedience is the natural and necessary outgrowth of that love. Just as salvation must precede uh, a real life of faith, so love for Christ needs to precede an obedient one. If obedience is the telltale sign of love for God, then disobedience. Hmm, disobedience. Well, let's let's finish that. It's a, it's an act of hatred. If I may use biblical terms here, uh, it's an act of hatred. Just so you know, this is not my language; it's the Bible's language. Listen to John fourteen twenty four: He who does not love me does not keep my words. That's pretty clear. Or how about Second John two four: The one who says, "I have come to know him," this is in a personal. Loving relationship. If I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. So according to John, someone who does not keep Jesus' words but says he is a Christian has no love for Christ and is a liar, according to John. And that's pretty strong language. Jesus also said that if we have another God that we serve, then we wind up loving one and hating the other, and that's also strong language. So someone might be saying, "But, but look, I, I disobey God sometimes, and and many times unknowingly, it surely doesn't mean that I hate God, does it? Is that what you're saying?" Well, not if you're conscientious about repentance and changing your sinful ways once you discover them. Not if you have a biblical sorrow about what you've done that leads you to repentance. John's talking about those who practice sin, who who have no regard whatsoever for a truly biblical way of living once they've learned it from the Bible, but want to continue in their own way of doing things. What John's getting at is that disobeying God, having no regard for his word, marginalizing his truth, or ignoring it altogether, is not characteristic of someone who loves God. So in those moments when true believers sin, you could say that they are committing acts that are against God, against his word, against his will. And that's why when you discover them... You want to stop them immediately and change. If we understand disobedience and sin that way, then it's entirely appropriate to ask a believer in Jesus Christ who drifts from orthodoxy, do you love Christ? Or someone who's living in sin, do you love Christ or not? Because if they say that they love Christ, well, then they have a strange way of showing it. And that's something we need to point out. The last word I'll say on, on this is that the New Testament describes disobedience in various ways, one of which is idolatry. For a Christian to follow a way of life or behave, a, beha- a way of behaving and thinking that is different than what God outlines in the Bible really amounts to idolatry. Now, that makes perfect sense. If obedience shows that we love God, then disobedience shows that we love something else or someone else more than God at the moment we commit idolatry. Again, if Christians commit an idolatrous act, it doesn't mean that he is necessarily counterfeit. But it does mean that he is acting like an idolater at that moment. At that very moment, if the world were to look at you, they would not be able to tell the difference between you and an unbeliever. Idolatry, as you know, is essentially focusing our affections on something other than Christ. It's an abuse of our love, a misappropriation of our love, because we direct it on an, on an illegitimate object, or, or a, on a legitimate object, object in an illegitimate way. And by that I mean we would would so love this other object to the point where we love it first, before Christ, and we get the priorities all mixed up. And in that very instance, our love becomes nothing more than lust, an ungodly passion. It's, It's noteworthy that the Apostle John ends his first epistle by telling his audience to guard themselves against idolatry, and that Paul calls the Corinthians in his first letter, don't be idolatrous, but to flee from it. We don't want to have any part of it. It is really an act of hatred, and we don't want to be involved in that kind of activity. Now, with this understanding of love for God, we can appreciate the writer of, what the writer of Hebrews does here. He certainly understood the, the absolute way in which Jesus calls for us to love him, and that this love possibly a possible rather only by the regenerative work of the holy spirit is by far the most powerful motive that there is in the walk of faith because i pointed out this pointed this out last time the one who loves cares more for the one he loves than for himself the writer then wants his audience to find their love for christ their greatest motivation to run the race of faith well now we saw that Uh, in the truth of verse 4, which is essentially, be faithful to your first love. That's in verse 4. Be faithful to your first love. If you were with us last time, you'll remember that the writer calls both married and single Christians to honor marriage because it provides not only the precedent for all godly relationships, as God would have them to be, but more importantly because it illustrates every Christian's union with Christ. I firmly believe that God instituted marriage with the ultimate and grander purpose of being a living picture of of his relationship with his people. So the writer uses marriage in verse 4 as the most profound earthly human relationship that God ordained for us to teach us that all Christians in the church are to keep themselves chaste for God, their first love the most profound, spiritual, supernatural relationship that God ordained for us. The writer's reference to marital fidelity and sexual purity, then, is totally appropriate here in a passage that deals with maintaining our faith. Here's the second truth. It comes in verses 5 and 6. Second truth. And this also makes absolute sense. If Christ is our husband and demands fidelity in our marriage with him. It is this, satisfy yourself in Christ. Satisfy yourself in Christ. Find your contentment in Christ. Here's how the writer puts it. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, I will never forsake you. So that we... Confidently say the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? I want you to see a direct correlation between fear of what could happen to you and the security of riches, two things. I want you to see the correlation between those, fear of what could happen to you and the security of riches. It's strong and I think that it will make sense to you once I point it out. Wealth means power. In most places in the world, it grants authority. Wealth gives you a voice. Money talks. Wealth also provides security: top-of-the-line health insurance, best doctors, surveillance, surveillance, somebody whistle, surveillance cameras. There we go, in and around your home, even bodyguards, if. You so desire. So, the more money you have, the more power, the more authority, the the more security you have. Extremely rich people can make things happen. That's why people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg get to have a say in how America should run their lives when it comes to vaccines and PPE protocol. But they're not scientists or medical doctors. No, they're billionaire magnets, and that gives them a pass on medical and scientific credentials. So let me be clear. Having as much money as you can get your hands on is the the way to go in this world, in this life, if you believe in no God but money, all right? It is the way to go grab all you possibly can, amass all you possibly can get if there is no God but money. Why is this true? Because money makes the world go round. You know that. And that, the more money you have, the smoother your ride. So let's be honest. The world is a difficult, harsh, unforgiving, doggy dog place where no one cares about you or will look after you or your well-being. You're really on your own. Your life is what you make it. And Making yourself rich is the best thing you can do if you want to get ahead and stay there despite what those sappy songs of yesteryear say about can't buy me love. Don't ever let anyone tell you that you cannot buy happiness. You can. You can buy yourself an endless supply of happiness the more funds you have. Everyone knows that. And once you bring God into the picture, well, then everything changes. Everything changes when you bring God into the picture. Ecclesiastes 10.19 says that only the fool believes that money is the answer to everything. That's a direct quote. Christians' number one goal in life is not to get rich or to own as much property as possible. It's not even to be happy in life. Rather, as the Confession says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We know that material things that people crave and depend on for their happiness, meaning, and identity in life are fleeting. They're fleeting. But Christians, they live for a better country, not this one. And until we get there, our task as pilgrims is to make God known to the nations, to live Christ to the world, to proclaim the good news of the gospel wherever we go, while at the same time being very confident that God will meet our most basic needs as we go about glorifying him. Jesus summed it up this way in Matthew 6. Do not worry, then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And the same idea is in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Same idea. We Christians must take, or make sure rather, that we're not characterized by a love for money. Because that amounts to greed. And greed, you see, is all about a miss. Placed affection it's idolatry Jesus spoke this very to this very issue again Matthew 6 no one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and money rather than love the Lord with all our heart we love something else in this case money and we wind up serving it how do you serve money Well, you choose it over all other loves. That's how you spend all your time and energies increasing it, guarding it, investing in it, spending it, enjoying it. You make everything about money. Put a price tag on everything. Evaluate all you do in life by cost analysis. You make profits more important than people. It's it's easy to see how you can serve two masters. You cannot rather serve two masters because you will always choose one over the other. You need to understand that God created human beings as worshipers, right? Know that every person worships something. And God's desire in creating us as worshipers was, of course, that we would worship Him. We would be like the psalmist in Psalm 73 who declares to God, Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. But the psalmist stands is a mature one that takes a good amount of our focus, energy, and determination if we are going to maintain it. It takes, to borrow a phrase from our Lord, all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. We can see why it's easy for Christians to allow themselves to have divided loyalties, to redirect their love for God onto something else. We're worshipers, and we don't live in the garden anymore. We live in the world and and our entire American culture is characterized by greed. It makes materialism look virtuous. It teaches the need to amass all one can to be stable and secure. And here's where the fear comes into play. Christians in this environment can become fearful of their livelihood and their very existence when their finances are threatened. Now, I mentioned a few moments ago that our verse shows a correlation between fear of what could happen to you and security of riches. Well, here it is. Fear grips many in the church. What are they afraid of? Well, the same thing that the first century congregation feared, that their devotion to Christ would jeopardize the quality of their life. What an odd thing to say. Why should Christians ever be concerned about that? Isn't isn't forsaking all to follow Christ something that they settled at conversion? You would think, if the gospel is about surrendering your life to Christ and following him no matter what, why would Christians, far into their spiritual walk, ever rethink this and fret over what could happen to them? Christians are willing to lose their lives for Christ's sake and find them in the end, right? Yet here we are. And this is exactly where these first century century Christian Jews were as well. The, writer, the writer's Christian audience was fearful about being able to not being able not to secure things in life that mattered most to them. Could have been food, shelter, protection each of which, by the way, they they felt were threatened by their devotion to Christ. The ironic part about all of this is that these basic needs are the very things that we just read that Jesus promises to provide for us in sufficient measure as we seek what is most important, and that's the kingdom. For this first century church, those basic necessities had become more important to them than the kingdom. Well, let's stick with money as an example. Since the writer brings it up as an obstacle to these Christians, in hopes of, of being as cautionary as possible and guarding our hearts from misplaced affections, specifically an obsession with money, we might start by saying that we Christians must be content with what God has given us monetarily. All right? That's what he says in the verse be content with what God has given you. And he already mentioned money, so this is what we're talking about. But I want to clarify that because I've seen people in the church misunderstand this teaching and take a sinful stance on money that runs in two extremes, that being the prosperity gospel view on the one hand and the Roman Catholic asceticism view on the other. So one links true meaningful spirituality to riches and the other links it to poverty, two extremes, both Sinful stances, heretical views. Let me me get into this a little bit. First, we need to be clear that money for Christians is just a means to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. A means. A means. Not the means. A means. In other words, as part of being obedient, spirit-filled Christians and good stewards, we bring glory to God by the way we handle the wealth that God has entrusted to us. That's how it doesn't matter how much you have it matters that you handle it in a godly way the issue is not should we have money but are we responsible with the money that we have what i'm arguing here is that our money should be a means as a, 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 a means to keep us going as we live Christ to the world That's really what it is. Number two, Christians are responsible to make a living. (laughs) They're responsible to make a living. The assumption of the New Testament is that Christians will have money because they are expected to pay their taxes, to give of their offerings on the first day of the week, to support full-time shepherds of their local churches, to care for their elderly family members, to give to the poor, and so on. Paul gives us a work ethic, in fact, in Colossians 3. And one implication we take from that is that God is the one who blesses our yield and grants money. And he doesn't do it apart from human industry, by the way. Okay? We need to understand that. In other words, God provides for those who provide for themselves. I guess I could put it that way. He blesses their honest work with wages. That's what God does. That's how he blesses us. While it's true that at times God works it out that some long-lost long, long lost uncle, rather, that you never knew died and left you a huge inheritance, or that you had an accident because of a settlement you were now financially set for the rest of your lives, or that you received a, a money uh, from an anonymous concerned Christian party, those are blessed exceptions. Blessed exceptions. As a rule, God blesses us through our hard work. He provides for Christians who are industrious. So while it's true that you should pay, or pray rather, to God for your daily bread, understand that God answers your prayer generally through your hard work. All right? Paul told the Thessalonians that anyone who's not willing to work shouldn't expect to eat. Some Christians don't understand that principle and they think that they don't need to look for a job when they're unemployed. They just need to ask God to provide for them and expect a job to fall out of the sky like manna. The Bible's formula for faithful Christians is this. This is a very simple principle. Pray and do. Pray and do. That's the principle. Pray for your daily bread and then give 100% effort at your work or at finding one as the case may be. Number three, God is not opposed to wealthy Christians because He is the one who is responsible for their wealth. Right? I want to belabor this just a little because this is a real tricky one, and lots of Christians fall here. They they falter, and a lot of a lot of uh, terrible things have happened in the church as a result of finances. This is another huge mistake. It flies in the face of the fact that God is the one who blesses us with what we have, whether we've worked for it or inherited it. God is responsible for what we have. In fact, it's downright heretical that Christians should think otherwise. Christians shouldn't be rich, they say, especially full-time Christian workers, missionaries, and pastors. Oh, no. Especially not them. No doubt the televangelists and the shysters behind the large electronic churches of the 80s have left a sour taste in the mouths of many Christians, and it's lasted till today. It's also formed a stereotype that was indelibly stamped on American public conscience. It says that full-time Christian workers should be poor. Everyone knows that. Any advancement in their income is a sure sign that they are money-hungry leeches that take, care, take advantage of gullible churchgoers. <clears throat> well, if we make a good amount of money legitimately and we use it to further the kingdom in some way, we shouldn't care what the world thinks. Satan will always spin the truth in the eyes of the world, all right? And Christians who think that having a lot of money is somehow sinful for any other Christian have been influenced by things other than the biblical text. I'm going to show you this. That view is just as heretical as the prosperity gospel, just in the opposite direction. Both are extreme views and they are abuses of biblical teaching. And abuses should not determine what is proper practice. An elder of a local church once told me that pastors shouldn't make more than the lowest paid member of their congregation Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to minister to that member effectively. And if that's true, then the Apostle Paul was at a great disadvantage at the Church of Thessalonica because he made much more than many of them did there. He actually took time away from strictly counseling and preaching and teaching to make a living for himself by making tents. And he actually made enough money to support not only himself, but also his entourage, and even enough to refuse any money that the Thessalonian church eked out and wanted to give to him, which was his right to receive. Apparently, the elder who said this to me would never have Paul as his pastor. At the same time, I've also known in my years of ministry pastors who were independently wealthy. Maybe you know some. They were saved later in life after they had acquired great wealth. They quit their business to go into full-time ministry because they loved Christ. And they didn't need to raise, support, or spend any time working to support themselves because they were fully engaged, but be fully engaged in the work of the Lord. Those that I knew personally were a great blessing to the church in ways that were different than those pastors who were not wealthy. Jesus, of course, our divine role model... He was king and is king and remains king and Lord of lords when he ministered to the poor. Right? He didn't stop being king. He had it all. Someone says, oh, but he became poor. Yep, to make us rich. And Jesus' condescension into Into a poor man's life was not so that he could relate to the poor people only, but also to the rich, right? He became poor to relate to rich people. Most of all, it was that he would be our substitute. What's more, all throughout the Bible, God blesses industry and hard, honest work of faithful believers. That is one of the greatest themes of Proverbs and also the biblical wisdom literature in general, Should we think that God punishes Christians for being wise in their business dealings? Or that it's sinful for them to invest their money? And would it not make sense to see pastors modeling industry to irresponsible slouches in the church who refuse to earn a living as Paul did to the Thessalonians? Is it not more advantageous for a full-time Christian worker who is a wise investor to let his money make him money rather than to take time away from the ministry and work for a wage. I think so. And then there's the danger of thinking that there is something virtuous about being poor. Hmm. The Catholic Church puts a premium on asceticism. And if the one who lives on next to nothing is somehow more spiritual than the one who has much, uh, he is quite deceived. Last I checked, the servant in Jesus' parable of the talents that did not invest his talent that the master had given him was considered a lazy and irresponsible servant. Not only that, but the servant that made the most on his investment for the master's money received from the master not only praise, but the lazy servant's talent For to everyone who has, Jesus said, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Now we know that the point of the parable is to be faithful with what God has given us and that would be investing in the kingdom. He's given us a saved life and we're to use that life to invest in the kingdom. Now that includes money, but it includes much more than than money as well. But the illustration that Jesus uses for this parable comes from a real life context of wise investing and stewardship. And not thinking... Uh, and, and, and no thinking Christian, rather, would ever deny that finances are a crucial matter in one's life and in the church. So crucial, J. Adams wrote in Shepherding God's Flock, quote, that Paul exhorts Timothy to set up a special rich men's Bible study in order to instruct wealthy persons how to use their money for the honor of Christ, end quote. He is referring to 1 Timothy 6. We read it, Here it is in part, verses 7 to 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves treasure in a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You'll notice that Paul's, Paul's instruction here has, nothing to, has, uh, here has to do with, with the godly way to handle monies that God has given to people. Not how to become poor. There's no command here about sell all. Right? None. Even the Apostle Paul was at times in his ministry well off. Bet you never thought that. Yep, he was. You might recall that he told the Philippians that he learned the secret of being content in any circumstance. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. That's next to nothing. And I also know how to live in prosperity. Again, the issue is not whether a Christian, full time in ministry or not, should be prosperous. It's how he lives in times of prosperity. Is he grateful? Is he humble? Does he share God's blessing with others in need? Does he support the ministry? Is he wise in his stewardship of it? The point that Paul makes about learning to be content in any situation is the very one that the writer of Hebrews now makes for his audience here in chapter 5. Be content with what you have, Paul, um, the, the writer says. So Christians should not fret over what might happen to them if they don't have the financial backing to be powerful and authoritative and secure. They work and do what they can. They are responsible, and the Lord is our helper. So seek the kingdom, the writer says, and God will keep you going by meeting your most basic needs and blessing the fruit of your labor as you go. Find your satisfaction in Christ. Be content in him. The writer has made the point so far that we are to be faithful to our first love. That's verse 4. And to satisfy ourselves in Christ. That's verses 5 and 6. His final word in this section of personal maintenance of our faith is to find our husband's words, that is Christ's words to us, as a sound means of grace. That's the third truth, verses 7 to 9. Seek his word as a means of grace. He says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. The leaders that the writer refers to here are the original founders of this church to, to, uh, to, uh, to whom the, the writer is writing. They brought the gospel to these people. They were the generation that may have even seen the Lord himself. They were deceased by this time. They were worthy saints. They taught these folks doctrine and lived what they preached. They weren't hypocrites. They were Christians who meant business for Christ. They ran well. They fought well. So the writer commands his audience of drifters to remember them, remember their faith, and to imitate it. Recall the way. They lived their lives for Christ, how they raised their kids, loved their wives, ministered to others, accepted God's lot for them, received persecution well, lived in anticipation of the better country, and died valiantly in the Lord's service because their hope was in the resurrection. Jesus was the source of their strength and the object of their hope. In other words, they found Jesus credible and his words reliable. They trusted what Jesus taught. Now, it's at this point that the writer introduces that verse where, that we've heard uttered a thousand times. He goes on to say, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which, no doubt, reached creedal status even then. Now, what does this have to do with faithful leaders who lead an exemplary Christian life, and how does it connect them to this congregation? Here's how. You ready? If Jesus' words were reliable for these leaders of a bygone era and the source of their strength and motivation to run well, then Jesus remains the same for this congregation and for all Christians of every era going forward, for you and for me. Can you see that the writer is pointing us to the sufficiency of Christ? You see that? We find Peter talking of both Jesus and his words as sufficient for our spiritual walk in 2 Peter 1.3, that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. That's sufficiency. What we need for life and godliness is bound up in the teaching of Christ. And because Christ is God and never changes, neither does his truth. It's absolute. It's sufficient for us. As the old hymn says, Trust in him, ye saints, forever. He is faithful, changing never. Now, the sure fact about Jesus and his teaching that the writer introduces, prepares us for what comes in the rest of the verse. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who are so occupied were not benefited. What an appropriate thing to say to this congregation. They had regressed back to Judaism. A rather aberrant form of it at that, courtesy of the Essene community. The strange teaching of this long-standing sect that appealed to these Jewish Christians exalted angels over Christ, specifically three angelic messianic figures of the Apocalypse. It emphasized the earthly temple. It stressed the significance of the sacrificial system. These are not only foreign to Old Testament theology, but it's foreign to the Gospel, so what strange teaching now out of the Essene community was that this congregation attracted to this time round? It was the belief that rituals having to do with food, that is, sacred food, sanctified them. That's what they believed. Notice the reference to eating certain foods that were beneficial for righteousness. That is a phrase that can refer Only to the various sacred meals of Judaism, like eating the Passover or other sacred meals attached to the Hebrew calendar and the great festivals. They had mistakenly thought that partaking of such food strengthened their heart, their conscience, gave them assurance that God was pleased with them. It gave them comfort to know that they could secure God's pleasure by means of a meal, a ritual meal, as if food had some magic power. They mistakenly thought that they that the way to spirituality was through one's stomach. In fact, it's of no benefit to spirituality at all. The writer makes perfectly clear that those who engaged in these sacred meals and rituals are not benefited in the least. Truth be told, he says, to strengthen your heart, to fortify your mind, your conscience, your will, and and affections for God in your spiritual walk, you must rely on God's grace alone. And in this context, we already know in what form God's grace comes to them, right? It's in Jesus' words. They knew it as apostolic truth. We know it as the Bible. God's word is... One of God's ordained means of grace to encourage and strengthen the hearts of believers as they run the race of faith, as they fight the good faith. The writer already made the point that the Levitical system could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. We read that chapters ago. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8 that food will not commend us to God. Food strengthens the body, but only grace strengthens the heart the Hebrew Christians were still following the example of Esau being led by ungodly passions in an ungodly direction. There's no question, beloved, about how desperately this congregation needed to be reminded of Jesus' faithfulness. And I would be quick to add, so do we all, especially in this time of pandemic pandemonium. The only thing that will strengthen your heart in this time or any other time, is God's truth, his promises. Because that never changes. It's always relevant. It's our moral compass that points to godly living. It shows us the way to go, the right courses for life to run. And it's the pages of God's word that we seek our refuge, our strength, our identity, our confirmation, courage, authority, direction, sustenance, and hope. So the writer says to his congregation and the Holy Spirit says to us, be faithful to your first love. Seek your satisfaction in Christ. Find his words for you a means of grace. Father, we are grateful for this time together. We could open your truth. We could read it. We could be assured that with the help of the Holy Spirit assisting us in our study, we would understand it and that we can apply it. And we do pray that we would go from this place ready to seek our satisfaction in Christ, to prove our fidelity to Him, to lean upon His words of eternal life that we have, the Bible, the very words of God as a means of grace that we might be able to run well and fight the good fight. Oh, Father, we pray that that you will be pleased with our effort as we seek the kingdom aggressively, as as we invest all our time and our energies in the kingdom, knowing full well and being fully convinced that as we do, you will continue to keep us going and provide for our needs that we might honor you and glorify you. That you would be properly glorified in in our lives before the world. And that your church will benefit as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.